and welcome to this Vinegar Syndrome release of 1987's Shallow Grave by the director Richard Stiles. Uh, we are collectively the Hysteria Continues, the Slasher Loving podcast, and we'll be talking at some length probably about whether or not this uh, qualifies as a slasher movie. Um, I kind of think it does, but we'll be talking about that. But as I say, we are... Uh, you know, usually uh, we speak about slasher movies and uh, we're very excited to be talking about this Lost Gem or previously Lost Gem, which has now given a fantastic treatment by our friends at Vinegar Syndrome. Uh, I'm Justin Kurzweil, uh, the author of the Slasher Movie Book and the uh, webmaster of Hysteria Lives and I'm joined by my co-host uh, today, Eric. Are you excited to be covering Shallow Grave? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Excellent. And uh, and also, because uh, Joseph and Nathan are kind of from this neck of the woods, aren't you? Yes, I would say so. Excellent. So you'll be giving your kind of locals eye on this movie because it is a kind of movie, as we'll get into it, it's a movie set somewhere, but um, it actually was filmed somewhere else. So, um, But uh, Joseph, uh, it is set in Georgia and I believe you live in Georgia now. Yes, I grew up around Georgia and I currently reside there. But as far as I know, I don't think there is a Medley, Georgia. There is a Medley, Florida. So, uh, and Florida is just below Georgia. So I'm assuming they probably didn't want to uh, reference that they were in Florida and they were making, you know, a, a film about murder set in Florida. So they just changed it to Georgia. Maybe Georgia's pissed off about that. <laughs> Uh, I think you might be right. We'll get into a little bit about um, Flora's slightly complicated relationship with the film industry. But I just wanted to point out that um, I just noticed that this time, the first time was uh, Don Johnson poster in the background to one of the uh, sorority girls' rooms. Uh, and he yeah. was in in the producer's film Ceasefire from 1984, which I'm sure we'll talk about. That is the poster for Ceasefire, yeah. That's in the background, yeah. So we're starting. We're starting off in uh, as you and this kind of this opening almost reminds me of um, Brian De Palma's Blowout. If you remember the Coed Frenzy, the the fake um, slash movie within the film, uh, where it pulls back and it shows that in fact actually it was a trick. It wasn't really. It was it was John Travolta doing sound for a cheap slasher slasher movie, and so this is. Um, this film for me, and I'm sure we've, we've talked about this and we kind of agree to some, well, to some degree, it's a film that does a complete switcheroo. It starts off as this relatively frothy kind of slasher, not parody exactly, but um, it's kind of parodying the uh, the psycho shower scene here, um, which is also something done in the Funhouse, uh, Toby Hooper's Funhouse, which was also shot in Florida back in 1980. And if you remember that movie, it had a uh, a psycho-inspired um, uh, joke scene where it turns out it's uh, uh, the uh, the main girl's kid brother who uh, sort of uh, stabs her with a rubber knife in the shower, and we see something similar here. So, I mean, when you guys first saw this, were you surprised it kind of took the kind of turn it does? Well, unlike 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 the Funhouse, I think they're they're going for that Hitchcock thing. Um, a lot of the reviews I'd read for this, uh, they, they pointed to this as being kind of. Uh, you know, it doesn't belong in this film. But if you actually, um, if you actually watch this scene and contrast it with the rest of the film, it could sort of be seen as a subtle hint that the plot will take more, uh, take on more of a Hitchcock route with the 
the kind of the action survivor trope and then the uh you know that's ordinary individuals thrust into kind of extraordinary circumstances that kind of results in a fight for survival you also have that kind of that lifeboat or rope feeling of claustrophobia as they are locked away in the sail later in the film. And then you have the dramatic irony and the reveal of the killer being the town sheriff. Uh, heck, I mean, even this opening scene is a bait and switch, like you said, uh, made popular by Hitchcock. You know, it's also done to, uh, uh, you know, similar effect in the funhouse. Although I think here it ties in with a lot of the tropes of Hitchcock more so than, uh, the funhouse did a funhouse just felt more like a carnival ride where this one feels more like they're, you know, they're tipping their hat to the old master as it were. Did anyone get time to, to compare this to the shower scene in Psycho to see how exactly it compares? Is it, is it shot for shot in places? I think it is. Yes, it is. I actually watched the Psycho shower scene uh, when I watched this one because I'm like, a lot of the angles, the camera angles and everything look exactly the same. I mean, um, I'll be, this one has nudity and the original Psycho, Psycho did not, but I would say that's probably the ma- major difference. I think if Hitchcock was able to make a uh, psycho or slasher movie in 1987 he or 86, he would have probably included nudity if he could get, get away with it. Um, because I think it was risque even for, at that point, with Janet Lee wearing a brassiere sitting on a bed, wasn't it? That was pretty, pretty risky uh, in 1960. Yeah, he's the, definitely the, you'd feel like he'd be like way against standards and practices. Yeah. Well, his last film, Frenzy, of course, from 1972, really did kind of push the, the boundaries of uh, of kind of what was shown sort of sexuality and violence shown in thrillers. So I think he would have been very um, in his element in the early and mid 1980s. Um, I just want to very quickly just mention the, the shower girl because we're seeing her come up again in a minute. So she was an actress called Kimberly Johnston, who seems to be do the only. This is her only screen role, but um, like many of the people uh, in this, and certainly a lot of the, um, the supporting players, uh, did a lot of theatre at the time. And she well, did do a bit of theatre in the late '80s in Florida, including some turns in, uh, in the best little whorehouse in Texas. But um, she, but uh, she does get her acting chops in this, given that she's incredibly overly dramatic um reaction to having red hair dye i kind of like how she just she knew to instinctively reenact the uh, psycho shower movements of janet lee when she was getting her hair dyed i mean who does that (laughs) (laughs) so we've got the um uh we've got the the four uh main protagonists which we'll we'll uh talk about uh later at this catholic school who are kind of um uh, just as every teen uh, in uh, worth their salt in the uh, the mid late 80s wanted to head down to uh, the Florida, Miami, and Fort Lauderdale for spring break. I presume this is spring break. Um, but I just want to quickly mention why we've got here because obviously nuns and slash movies. Um, obviously, if you've ever seen Silent Night, Deadly Night, you know they make much more of an appearance. But you've got the kind of not exactly evil nun here, but. Um, uh, this this actress is notable because um, uh, she actually passed away in 1988 at the age of 48. So quite recently, uh, quite quickly after this film was made, her name was Charmaine Stratus. Um, the reason I mention her that she was um, quite famous in Florida as being uh, one of the first female disc jockeys in South Florida, uh, and she moved to um, to LA to manage the career of a of a woman called Shandy Cinnamon. I've never heard of her. Have any of you guys heard of her? Can't say that I have. She was apparently quite a big deal for a moment in in the mid-1970s. But uh, Charmaine um, uh, kind of came back and she was in a couple of films, but she was well-known 
in uh, in the um, in the circles in uh, in Florida. But apparently, um, she was managing Shandy Cinnamon, who uh, did a, um, a song for Flashdance in 1983. But I thought we'd mention her here because uh, she's uh, this is her one and only scene. What is it with nuns uh, being kind of overly authoritative in these films? Well, I think these girls get away with, with uh, well, they get away with murder, <laughs> quite literally. I think they, they're let off lightly considering what they did. I mean, all the all that shower girl did was try and make the move on one of their boyfriends or something, and they pretend to kill her, which seems a bit of a harsh reaction. I do like these girls, though. Well, they're lucky they didn't give her a heart attack. Well, it's kind of a it's a bit of foreshadowing, isn't it? Really, because this the the idea that you've got like the um, the scare that isn't really a scare, and then you have this first kind of twenty minutes, I kind of guess, of this kind of road movie of these uh, sorority sisters on on a road trip to to Florida. And it, you, if you're watching this and you're watching on TV uh, late at night, or sort of, um, uh, you just kind of you would have no idea if you hadn't read the synopsis that the way this was going to turn. Because this very much could have just um, become a kind of female-centric sort of road movie, really, couldn't it? Sort of, um, or a turn into kind of like a Porky-style comedy or anything. Whereas it takes a very dark turn very, very quickly, doesn't it? Which is, um, it's something why this film, for me, I, um, I mean, we'll talk about later how we first saw it. But it, for me, it's a film that I kind of knew had a kind of a reputation as a slasher movie to some degree. And the box art kind of sort of tipped its hat to that. But I really wasn't prepared for it to go from this kind of sugary sweet kind of um, neon tinted fun of like the uh, late 1980s kind of horror slasher movies into a kind of more of a grindhouse, more 70s grindhouse feel of the uh, the second two thirds of the movie. I mean, was it a surprise when you first saw the film, you guys? I mean, Eric, was it? did it take you by surprise how, how quickly it turned? Um, it, pr- it probably would have, except that uh, I saw this film after I had spoken to you guys, and you told me that the first half, the first half hour or so, was quite frothy and frilly, and then it takes a darker turn. So I was kind of expecting it, but I mean, I imagine uh, that if I had watched this uh, knowing nothing about the film, I would have been very surprised. I mean, it it does a bigger switcheroo than something like From Dust Till Dawn, even. Um, because as you said, it feels like a Porky's um, we're going on a spring break to Florida type movie for these opening parts and I think that these opening parts are great I think um, I think myself and Nathan were saying we we would quite happily watch a movie with these four girls going on a road trip to Florida with no sort of murder or anything in the plot because I think that they're, they're really fun characters to watch, I particularly love Sue Ellen and Rose because Sue Ellen is obviously modelling herself on Madonna from a few years previous to this and uh, I just like Rose's sort of sarcastic demeanour and the fact that she that she's just wearing a boob tube and a pair of, um, well, it's a, a G-string or something she's wearing um, for this little road trip which seems a bit bizarre. Um, but yeah, the... I like this- I like the scene coming up a little bit later where she's been smoking and she keeps asking for a cigarette and there's like thousands of cigarette butts on the ground. <laughs> it's like, God, it's like, haven't you had enough? <laughs> Were you surprised, uh, Nathan, when you saw it, uh, how it changed? Well, when I first saw this, I was really young and I think I was holding every movie to the standard of Friday the, the 13th or one of the sequels. So... Um, I think that I was expecting a much more cheesy 
movie than uh than what this movie really is. This movie actually, I don't. I mean, it, it's got its moments, but I think overall, you know, it's um, it's pretty downbeat. No, I agree. Which I feel yeah. is, you know, very uh, – I mean, there are other movies that have done it, but it wasn't the norm around this time frame. How about you, Joseph? What were your thoughts? Well, I came to Shallow Grave kind of late in life. It must have been 2004, 2005, but I remember seeing it um, – I think it was at movies for sale and that, that prism box. And I thought it was certainly, you know, had a memorable cover, but I always assumed it was some sort of just, just your standard exploitation title. So I, you know, I had no idea that I was going to kind of get into this, uh, this almost, uh, I don't even know what to call it. It feels like a pre Britney Spears crossroads of four girls going on an adventure and maybe they're going to, uh, you know, establish their, uh, you know, establish themselves as a uh, grown women. And then, nope, here comes the killer sheriff uh, going to put the kibosh on that. So I was quite surprised when I saw that. Um, although, you know, the, the title shallow grave, I, I, if I'm watching this, I don't think I'm going to expect, you know, a, a happy ending with a title like shallow grave. No. And of course it's probably worth saying off the bat, this isn't the, uh, you know, most people, um, if they think of shallow grave, they think of the Danny Boyle, uh, Scott, a movie set in Scotland from 1994. Uh, and obviously this couldn't be, I mean, in some ways, actually this film's even bleaker than, uh, that movie perhaps. Well, like I was saying, I, you know, I, I went into this thinking it was like a, just a standard exploitation title, kind of something like a Gator Bait or, you know, the Walking Tall films from the 70s. But it has those those slasher movie tropes that we look for. And I think I think it does them quite well for being a film that was released, uh, you know, far past the sell by date for, you know, slasher films and certainly way past the sell by date for the sort of small town uh, homegrown thrillers like Gator Bay, you know, like I said, um, you know, I think uh, those films are different thematically, but aesthetically they're identical to this film. If you ask me, I think shallow grave takes uh, some of the best bits from an assortment of genres and kind of blends them into this rather tense and ultimately grim film. If I had a problem with the film, it would be the ending, but otherwise I think it's, it's bloody fantastic. Well, I still think that it has a happy ending, but that's just my opinion. Um, You're ever the eternal optimist, Nathan. Yes, I, I want to be optimistic about this finale. Well, we'll talk about that as we get further into the movie. But, uh, yeah, we'll also talk about, actually, the uh, it's, it's interesting because in 1987 there were a lot of uh, slasher horror movies being made down in Florida. We'll talk about those. But certainly by 1987 or 86, when this was made in the summer of 86, it, the, the slasher movie was pretty much over as, as far as being a, a cinematic force, I kind of guess. Um, and although this film was actually, it was produced for uh, the cinemas, um, it um, for a March and then a September uh, release uh, to screens. It never got got that release. Uh, not even in Florida, as far as I, I'm aware. I mean, certainly back in the day, you you would uh, very well have got uh, regional rollouts of movies, and it wasn't beyond the you know uh, the certainly some films were made for certain regions. Uh, so you may get sort of southern made films that which did did the rounds in southern drive-ins. Um, but as far as I can tell, this film never got a, a release cinematically anywhere in the world. Um, certainly couldn't dig up any evidence of that, even though, say, it was made to be released to cinemas. Um, but we'll talk a bit more about the uh, the video release coming up. 
Um, but also just to sort of say the slasher movie kind of was um, sort of dead in the water really by this point. So you were seeing kind of twists on it. So you were seeing things like um, uh, killer monkey movies like Primal Rage or, um, you know, kind of Italian exploitation movies like um, kind of mixing slasher things up with like Nightmare Beach. Um, but this could also harkens back to some of the old, like the exploitation movies like uh, Joseph mentioned. Um, and we'll talk a bit more of those, some of those coming up. Yeah, you're talking about the release history and uh, whether or not it was released to cinemas. It's a shame that it didn't because, uh, you know, I think um, it, it has that, that cinematic sheen. The The cinematography is great. The uh, the direction is top notch. Even the writing, I mean, as, as cliched as it is, even the writing, the way they, I mean, the way they just kind of frame a lot of the suspense, it's really well done. And it's a, you know, it's a, it's a darn shame that this didn't get a cinema release. As far as I know, I think, you know, it just went straight to video in 1987 through Prism here in the States, at least. I know um, at foreign markets, it was on the embassy label, you know, in Japan and the UK. Um, and then they re-released it here. Uh, Prism re-released it again in 1990 with a, it was a joint venture with Paramount. I'm assuming uh, Paramount probably owned Prism at the time. I'm not 100% sure on that, but yeah. Um, I wonder if it if it got like a just like a one night screening if at all I mean and maybe just no one knew about it who knows I I do wonder if it was because the um it, it did such such a switcheroo and it just didn't play well or for whatever reason um uh, it's it's I I don't know I mean I think it plays it's it's one of the movie's great strengths I think is it does go somewhere else uh, than you would expect for like a sort of teen sorority slasher thriller of 1987 um so it but uh, whether or not that would have um, uh, played as well to sort of a teenage audience or a young audience in driving screens in Florida, I don't, I don't know. But clearly, it wasn't picked up for distribution. Well, right around this time, you also have stuff like, uh, well, I mean, this is probably like a year or two later, but you have stuff like Welcome to Spring Break and Rush Week, and you know, things that they're, they're kind of lighthearted and kind of bubbly. And this one starts out; it, it means to go on like that, but then it just pulls the rug out from under you, and it becomes dark and uh, cynical almost. So maybe you're right; maybe audiences were with it, or maybe you know this test screening was with it and then they saw the, the switch and was like nope i don't see this getting into theaters you're just gonna have to make some changes and then maybe they just didn't and just decided to go the video route instead yeah i mean certainly i mean as we mentioned the ceasefire poster in, in uh, earlier and that was um by the producer of this movie was uh, george fernandez uh who also co-wrote um uh, this movie as well and ceasefire i haven't seen it. it's got don johnson who pre-miami vice fame uh, and apparently it was um, it was a relative success, and apparently it was well very well regarded by Vietnam vets for it kind of unflinching uh, portrayal of PTSD. So uh, in this that was through his EL, EL, ELF Elf productions, um, and this was as well, but with a view perhaps of um, of uh, kind of uh, sort of making uh, sort of more movies, perhaps hence why this film was slightly more um, perhaps um, sort of grim rather than the typical teen slasher movie. It certainly got, it certainly has a, uh, like a higher budgeted sheen than a lot of the films at the time. I mean, cause I was watching this this week and I was, I was just, remar it was remarkable how, you know, how well put together this film is and how, you know, how little scene it is. It's, it's really, it's a shame. 
Uh, this actor here, by the way, we only see him briefly. His name is Shannon Rattigan, and uh, he was uh, probably a well-known face in the States. He used to do a lot of um, acting work in skits on the Jay Leno show in the 80s into the 90s. Um, he's now a, a professional drummer. But that was his uh, brief little cameo then in uh, Shallow Grave. Yeah, I found there was a, a blog, he used to do a blog of suggestions for actors and what pitfalls not to fall into. And apparently he said he was he was almost seduced by a, a rogue agent, female agent, when he was starting out. Um, and he's also, I think he is probably best known for playing, being in Star Trek The Next Generation as a Romulan officer. But of course, you can't usually tell what people look like under all that makeup. Um, but yeah, there's kind of fun little cameos throughout the movie as well from people, sort of, uh, mm. sort of actors and actresses uh, in uh, in Florida at the time. It's interesting you mentioned the uh, the blog for that actor because uh, the writer George Edward Fernandez, uh, he has a at least as of 2020, he had a series of LinkedIn posts where he he lamented everything from the changing film industry to the prevalence of uh, sexual predators in Hollywood. No surprise there. And he wrote a, uh, this is kind of amusing, he wrote a mini-review for uh, Jordan Peele's Get Out, in which he disagreed with the majority opinion at the time, calling the film's central narrative weak as a Kleenex, and then he got raked over the coals in the comments section for his dissenting opinion. Now, uh, I can't say whether I agree or disagree with him one way or another, but they're very interesting articles. He talks about, you know, um, what you need to do to uh, adapt to the changing film market with the streaming era, um, you know, what his uh, goals are still as a filmmaker. Uh, it's very interesting reads. I mean, you just Google his name and it's you're bound to find it. I was sh- I was surprised at how well uh, how well I enjoyed those articles. Yeah, it was interesting. I mean, this film, uh, I say it was, uh, I don't think it's a, well, obviously it wasn't uh, commercially successful because I don't think he produced anything for, an, for a couple of years until after this. Um, but obviously he, I, there was there was an interesting article in one of the Miami papers with him at the time talking about its production uh, and saying how he had hopes that this was a, could be a commercially viable pro- project. Uh, and uh, he, um, after ceasefire, it was kind of a bit more lighthearted, although, I mean, God only knows what ceasefire would be like if it's any more lighthearted than this. But apparently ceasefire was directed by David Nutter, who um, went on to produce and uh, and direct um, quite a few very well-known uh, TV series, including X-Files and Game of Thrones. Um he was. It was funny. One of the things he he talked on. We talk about the Miami and sort of Florida film industry and how it affected kind of low budget filmmaking, sort of coming up. But he said um, the irony was that um, uh, the pre-fame um, uh, of um, Don Johnson in uh, in Ceasefire was pre-fame Miami Vice. But he said when Miami Vice came to Florida. Uh, they were a boon and a, a bane to the industry because it meant lots of uh, jobbing actors could get to work and uh, production and film crew and people like that. But it said that it actually made it very difficult to find locations for movies because everyone, Miami Vice, was spending huge amounts of money on every episode. Uh, very, obviously, if you remember, it's a very glossy uh, sort of TV show. And um, it said that it made it difficult to find uh, locations because he also he mentioned that the college where they wanted to originally shoot the four girls being told off by the nun uh, wanted a thousand dollars more than they were willing to pay because Miami Vice had offered to pay two and a half thousand for an afternoon shooting at the college uh, a few weeks before. So it's kind of ironic that um, that uh, he helped Don Johnson with a leg up with ceasefire 
and then Miami Vice became a bit bit of a bit of a problem for kind of uh, low budget filmmakers in Florida at the time. Yeah, he currently uh, runs or has a capacity in Magic City Distribution. They're a Florida-based company that uh, they help sell indie films to streaming markets. And uh, Shallow Grave was one of those set indie projects at the time. It was released to 2B TV and I believe Amazon at one point. Um, so yeah, he, he's more today, more he does a lot of kind of film seminars and marketing. He tells people, he gives classes on how to market your film. And uh, he's, he's apparently quite successful at it. Oh, I've got some. I time. I was just going to say very quickly. I've just got some fun anecdotes coming up on uh, some of the things about the production from from him that I found in the, the film article. But you you were about to talk about the girls. Well, I just want I just want to mention, of course, Lisa Stahl, who are here, who plays Sue Ellen, whose weak bladder, of course, is what leads them into this um, web of terror that they're about to embark in. Um, but of course, she is famous uh, for being George Michael's girlfriend in the video for Careless Whisper in 1984. She looks very different in it. She's got kind of a, a bit of a pudding bowl fringe and she looks very like a, like a businesswoman. Whereas here she's, as I said, she's obviously like dressed as Madonna. But um, she was also... She was the partner and not the secret lover, by the way. Yes. So she's the one who, um, yeah, she was jilted by George yeah um, <laughs> she also appears in uh, Heart Condition with Bob Hoskins lucky girl uh, Tom Cruise in Jerry Maguire she's in that uh, she was in Calendar Girl with Jason Priestley all the pin-up boys got to star opposite obviously um, she's in you know she's worked with Michael Keaton and Nicole Kidman so she had a, a great career in the 80s she was mainly uh, known as a kind of a model at the time before she broke into acting um, it just um, it reminded me of um, the girl in the Take On Me video by AHA. Her name is Bunty Bailey, and she also went on to appear in a horror film because she's in uh, around the same time as this Dolls by Stuart Gordon, and she gets her, her eyes pulled out. But it's always fun to watch, see these um, pop movie stars who you never really hear about, but then discover that they had an acting career as well. Yeah, I, f- I found a fun article um, with uh, interviewing some, uh, we're talking about sort of B-movie production in Florida. And apparently Lisa Stahl got her uh, union card as a beach bunny. It gets a face blown off in Chuck Norris's Invasion USA. Oh, love that movie. Yeah, so she's, um, and uh, she was at, uh, she was alongside another woman who was talking about how her co-star got a face blown off, but got a union card. Um, and she went on. She was a cheerleader for the Miami Dolphins when she was younger, and she went on to be quite um, a regular, well, sort of well-known face on Florida's lottery million-dollar flamingo fortune. Which sounds could it be any more uh, Floridian than the uh, flamingo <laughs> fortune lottery? Um, with uh, co-host Michael Young in the late '90s, and now she runs a celebrity photography um, business called Sullivan Studios in LA. And apparently, what she's mm. up to now. Yeah, she was also in Baywatch Nights, which was the spin-off series of Baywatch, which I, I've never seen, but when I was reading up on it, apparently it had a supernatural twist. It was like mixing Baywatch with X-Files, where you'd have David Hasselhoff in, as a private investigator investigating like aliens and things, which seems like a very, right, a very bizarre spin-off. Yeah. yeah. This right here is kind of a, a rear window in the woods sort of moment. Another nod to Hitchcock. Now, I was going to ask you guys about the actor playing the... Uh, the sheriff here or more or less his character. I mean, like, do you get the impression that he may have murdered before or was this just kind of a heat of the moment thing? I always got the impression that was heat of the moment. 
I don't feel that he enjoys killing or wanted to kill, you know, all the people he kills in this movie. Yeah, but one thing led to another and then another. Yeah, but he just seems so good at it. And he seems so manipulative through the rest of the film. Like he's done this before. I was kind of conflicted on whether he's uh, he's just a stone cold murderer or just, a, you know, thrust into this by opportunity, because that seems to be the theme of this film. It's like everything is uh, opportunity. Like the whole movie is like based on opportunity. Like the girl has to go to the bathroom and uh, sees this going wrong place, on. wrong time. Yeah, I kind of get the impression that for me it felt like, uh, especially later on, you see him as almost uh, like he's got some kind of regret when he goes into the the dead woman's apartment to clear it and he smells her perfume. It's he almost he perfume, has a, yeah, yeah, he has a moment of regret, and there's a moment in the film where it looks like he might shoot himself as well. So I think he's just got himself in too deep, and basically there can be no survivors, Nathan. <laughs> well, yes, there can't be. <laughs> I mean, the the actor, Tony March, I think he's pretty good. In, I mean, there's, there's a mixture, I think, with acting abilities throughout the film, and I think that's completely, you know, but it certainly doesn't derail the film or push it into unintentional um, uh, moments of comedy at all. Uh, but it's, uh, it kind of works. I mean, Tony March, I could find very little on him. I mean, I know he was in films like The Assault and The Man with the Deadly Lens, but a, a, he's a difficult man to track down. I mean, just one thing to kind of mention is that quite often when we've done these commentaries, people say, oh, didn't, you know, were you, you know, did you must have known that they were going to interview the director or this or that? And we, we usually don't when we go into these. So we don't know what else will be on this disc. I'm sure it's going to be a wonderful disc. But um, if they've tracked down Tony March, I hope they have. And he can regale us a bit more of what he's been up to. But uh, a difficult man to find anything out about. I think he's um, I, on it for me personally. I think he's fantastic in this film. He reminds me of uh, I don't know if you guys know who this is, but David Strathairn, that actor. He was in a uh, uh, what's that one with uh, Kathy Bates, Dolores Claiborne. He was the abusive husband. He really reminds me of like a, a younger version of him. Um, I think he carries the movie very well in a villainous uh, role here. Of course, you get the. Uh, uh, the scene coming up with the God, this is this is so awful because this she goes to ask for a cigarette and then there's the uh, she doesn't respond to it. I'm like, OK, you just sealed your fate. I mean, again, it's just wrong thing to do. Yeah. It could have gone a totally different way. Yeah. You know, Hitchcock did that a lot. That wrong place, wrong time. Uh, I mean, this film, if you watch it and pay attention, it's littered with uh, Alfred Hitchcock tropes. I was shocked at how many uh, tropes I was able to pinpoint in this film. Donna Baltrin plays uh, Rose here, um, and, and uh, she was also in another slasher movie in the late 80s. Do you guys know what it is? Yes, it was Hide and Go Shriek. Yeah, she was also in Bloodbath and Psychotown. Uh, she was um, uh, Meryl Streep's body double in Death Becomes Her as well. Yes, and yeah. do you know what her, her most acclaimed uh, appearance was? I won't keep in suspense. It was she, um, Morgan Fairchild, had a, uh, a self-improvement video called Stress Management because apparently Morgan Fairchild in the late 80s, early 90s got so stressed that a couple of strands of hair fell out. So she did a video <laughs> called Morgan Fairchild Stress Management with tips on how to avoid stress as a successful woman. And uh, Baltram was the aerobic instructor in the video. So she kind of frugged in the background while Morgan gave uh, life-empowering advice to women across America. 
Well, that's her biggest want. claim love, to fame. I love Morgan Fairchild. Oh, I do too. Yeah. Oh, yes, absolutely. And of course, slasher movie connections there. Maybe they maybe they chatted about Morgan's uh, appearance on uh, the seduction and the Phantom of the Mall. And Phantom of the Mall, of course. Um, which would have been after this. But uh, this scene coming up with Rose, I think, is so effective. It's such a very simple effect really shocking it reminds me it's as shocking as the scene in assault on precinct 13 where kim richards is is shot at the ice well, see, cream i'm van. used i'm used to seeing the vhs copy of this so i never really you know got that it looks like he when he shoots her like it blows the top of her head off yeah that's what i think it happens yeah yeah and i never noticed that in the vhs print before so when i saw this uh, when i was watching the screener for this to prepare i was like whoa that was shocking. Especially as she's one of the really, really standout characters in the film as well, to have her she's, be the first to go. Yeah, she's my favorite, and she's so sympathetic, but she's kind of, she's kooky, but she's so sympathetic, and then she's the first to go, and then she gets her, literally her head blown off, and it's like, okay, this movie just took a very dark turn. See, one thing that I think, you know, just going back to the, the killer here is, you know, it's also like the way he acts while he's stalking them. It's not a... He doesn't seem like he's, uh, you know, like wanting to kill them to me. Like, you know, he, he seems just like he has to do it. Like he, his um, demeanor is always just, it has to be done. Well, I like how the, um, he's hiding behind the badge, but it's the badge that's going to come back to bite him in the, uh, the keister. I think that was a, a nice, it's a nice little capper at the end of there, jumping ahead, but, uh, I wonder if, like, I wonder if this film had any more, like, uh, just more slasher-esque murders to it, like, before it was released. Like, I, I wonder if anything was, like, cut. Do you know anything about that, Justin? Anything that might have been trimmed? Because it seems, to, it seems to me like this scene, like, it seems like it would go on for a little longer with the chasing. I think, I mean, my understanding is, I mean, the low-budget movie is, like, a $750,000 budget, um, and it was obviously intended as a commercial project after ceasefire. Uh, so, but obviously with a with a twist. But yeah, I don't. I think it's as it would say we're talking um, because there's so much goes on at the beginning of this movie, and then the last two thirds are literally the kind of the cat and mouse, um, both physically and mentally, uh, between the kind of the two surviving girls and the sheriff and his deputy. Uh, but so so much goes on. It's so front loaded. This movie, not that the rest of the movie isn't good, because that's when the the tension really ramps up, um, and you have the whole thing of do you know the sheriff kind of you, well you, you you'll know if you've seen the movie what happens. Um, but it's just that complete switcheroo. I mean, thinking the you know other films uh, that do this. I mean, I know it's a very strange comparison, but something like Audition is another movie, the Japanese movie, where it starts off as a light, frothy romantic comedy and then turns into a torture movie. It's it's not quite like that, but it's just such a such as a, a kind of about vault face, which is you know I think is fantastic. But I don't think. I think it was kind of certainly playing homage, not homage, but to say to homage certainly to Hitchcock, but looking at playing with the slasher movie tropes, um, but also looking back perhaps at more of those kind of the kind of early mid seventies shockers, the kind of backwards rural townies versus uh, rural folk kind of shockers of the um, of the seventies. I mean, certainly at the beginning when you, well, the beginning when the girls turn up at the diner and there's this kind of weird. Um, casual racism that they have and there's this very much kind of strange kind of um, feeling of like all these these um, um, 
all these kind of hicks are all a bit icky and we don't want to get our um, uh, fingers dirty. And it reminds me, just a very personal anecdote, very quickly, I went to LA once and went down to um, to, uh, to, to uh, Venice Beach and uh, we got out of the car and we asked these three valley girls, one of very like Paris Hilton types, where the beach was and they just were like, they kind of looked as if they couldn't believe that three um, or four uh, middle-aged British men were asking them a question and it just felt, you know, it's kind of like it's got that kind of the, the very much fish out of water, which is why a lot of these kind of um, sort of rural versus towny films, that's when they really succeed, when you have that very that very uh, pronounced juxtaposition between, between the two. Well, I guess I'm trying to determine what might, what kind of, what type of film might have been popular at the time, because this film seems to kind of dovetail between, you know, slasher, chase film, uh, you know, exploitation, even action film tropes. Uh, I'm wondering what was popular at the time, because like you said, this, this whole setup is slasher film, but then once they realize what's going on, it becomes just this kind of this cat and mouse chase movie, you know, which, uh, you know, lends itself to slasher films, but I don't, I don't know if they were just trying to cash in on one particular genre or if they were just paying homage to all. It's a very unusual film. I think they were spreading their bets, really. I mean, I just want to mention this actress here because she's not been with us much longer, but Cindy uh, is an actress called Just Kelly, which um, I presume is short for Justine, and it's her only credit. So again, very difficult to find any any information um, out about her. But I think she does, you know, a pretty good job. I mean, the four main female leads in this, um, and obviously two of them, unfortunately, get snuffed out very very quickly. Um, but uh, I think they they're pretty good in this for like a low budget movie. Yeah. Now my thing is like you when you kind of get to know these girls, you, you try to pinpoint who the lead girl is and who the, the secondary character is and you know, who's the final, who's the you last You might not girl. figure out who's going to be the last girl standing. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. It's like you, you try, is, is this girl, the lead girl, and then she gets killed and you're like, Nope. So I think they do a very good job of kind of subverting your expectations a lot. Yeah. Cause it's usually the smart girl who survives and uh, Sue Ellen is coming across as quite ditzy for most of the film. Uh, and she is the one who quote well she is the final girl although I don't <laughs> we were having arguments about this but we three of us are convinced she doesn't make it to the end. Now one thing I wanted to ask you guys what do you guys make of the uh, subplot of the guys looking for the girls because for me it just feels like kind of I filler like it was leading to something but then they just didn't have enough time to get to that or they just forgot about yeah, it. Yeah cuz I mean I even thought that they would come back in the end as maybe a, at least attempt to rescue them or something but the guys avert danger the whole movie. Yeah, and it's like a switch because, you know, in these types of films, the guys usually, you know, they ogle the women. But, you know, when you first get introduced to these women, these women are doing all the things that males are typically known for in slasher films. they pulling pulling pranks, objectifying people, uh, things like that. So, And then they just kind of vanish. They don't really add to the resolution whatsoever. So it almost feels like... I don't know, like they maybe they ran out of money and they couldn't finish the film or they couldn't finish that subplot. It's, it's very strange. Mm, it does feel very incomplete, that subplot. But I do like their inclusion, as you said, that it's um, subverting a lot of slasher tropes. You know, if you think of Friday the 13th, they're all sitting around playing strip monopoly, whereas the, the guys and gals in this are just, is it Paradise Lost they're discussing when they meet in the in the the canteen that in the earlier scene um which is very unusual for for a slasher movie but uh yeah one of the actors who plays one of the boys is uh victor 
Tuemo, to Tumeo, Tumeo, sorry. And uh, he's a uh, uh, probably his career is based around his dancing skills. He's he was in um, salsa and in lambada. If you remember the crazy lambada craze of nineteen ninety eighty nine ninety. Um, but uh, did you know he was he was a, a singer with the Chippendales in England in 1992? And now, did you get the Chippendales in the States? It's a male oh, yeah. male strippers, yeah, yeah. So he sang with them. I didn't know they had a singer with them, but obviously he sang and they danced. And uh, yeah, what an interesting career he's had. Yeah, because I saw that he moved to uh, South Florida in uh, 1986 and landed the the role of Shallow Grave. I think it was his first role, and he sort of professionally modelled uh, before that. But he's been very successful. I mean, he's been in, um, he's recorded cast albums for Sunset Boulevard and all sorts of things uh, since. Mm. He's gone on to a very varied and um, and uh, successful career. You could also. Uh argue that this these scenes where they're breaking into the, the gas station kind of uh feels kind of like something like you'd see in wrong turn or those backwoods slashers where they try to go get help even the texas chainsaw massacre where they go to the barbecue or the the little restaurant and the guy's there and he's obviously part of the clan that's what it feels like this scene kind of feels like a build-up to that but it doesn't exactly go there yeah, I mean, just talking about some of the other films that this potentially, and also I was talking about the a little bit later the the potential real life inspiration for this movie. Um, I mean, the uh, you know, I think for the, I mean, if you're like us, you would have seen a lot of early eighty slashers, and most early eighty slashers when they feature the sheriff, they're usually fairly useless, and uh, the fat buttable sheriff is kind of like the trope for the early eighty slasher movie. Um, and they're usually fairly ineffectual and kind of huffing and puffing, but never quite getting there in time. Um, but uh, there's been uh, the, I think this, we're talking about where the inspiration for this movie came from, and apart from the real life case, which I'll mention uh, a little bit later. But the, I think the producers were kind of hedging their bets and they were looking at the slasher movie, but also taking inspiration from uh, films that have been very successful 10 or 15 years before this. I mean, the kind of the bad apple sheriff kind of uh, trope kind of goes back to um a film like say flamingo road from 1949 uh with joan crawford and there's like she's battling this corrupt sheriff who's kind of runs this town with an iron fist but more more it really is the films from the mid 1970s that very much kind of set the kind of the urbanites versus the kind of corrupt police in rural locations um, um some of the films were well, like Macon County Line, which had a more that was more of a kind of vigilante movie with a, a southern sheriff out for blood after his wife's killed. Um I'm not sure if that came out before or after Death Wish, but that was very, very successful. I mean it was one of the most successful um uh, independent movies of its time and grossed over thirty million uh at the US box office or worldwide box office and uh, generated a sequel. Uh, there's also Jackson County Jail, um, which had a, a LA executive, advertising executive, um, uh, 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 sort of quits a job in uh, LA and then drives across uh, county uh, before falling foul of law enforcement. Um, possibly the, the possibly the biggest inspiration for me anyway that I've seen is a is the kind of infamous TV movie Nightmare in Bandham County, which has um, where two UCLA uh, coeds um, end up in the southern prison farm on trumped up uh, sort of charges um, after they uh, after a kind of sex crazed corrupt sheriff kind of fingers them for the better term. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's, it sounds like it sounds like the uh, pornographic version of Cool Hand Luke. Well, it actually, funnily enough, well, not funnily enough, it it was sexed up for the European market. It was a TV movie in the States, um, and it was sexed up. And there was also the other film that kind of reminded me of slightly, although it's kind of very different, is another film from '76, which had the killer sheriff with um, the killer inside me, uh, with Stacey Keach and Susan Terrell, which got a remake um, um, not that long ago, um, but uh, with a kind of a schizophrenic sheriff who. Um, uh, tries to do a good job but ends up killing people so there is that kind of trope but um i was going to mention there the real life case um because uh and i can't believe this isn't was an inspiration because there was an infamously uh an infamous case of uh, a, a sheriff called Jared john schaefer jr who um was arrested for was suspected of um, 30 plus murders in florida and he would kidnap and murder sort of teenage girls, co-eds. And um, he, in 1972, he picked up two hitchhiking teenage girls and abducted them, uh, took them to a forest and tied them up. Um, and they escaped, but inadvertently ran to the nearest police station, which happened to be Gerard John Schaefer's um, uh, own police station. Uh, but luckily, they managed to escape. Um, and I think he m- got away with it, some kind of bullshit excuse, and went on to kill kill others, but was eventually arrested and murdered in prison. So it seems like that seems too much a coincidence, considering this was also in Florida, that it wasn't a kind of direct inspiration for Shallow Grave. Well, I'm, ass- I'm assuming that, you know, the, the writer, you know, took a lot of tropes from films and mashed them together, but also kind of inspired, was inspired by real life events in the area at the time. Um, I mean, that would make sense. Yeah, absolutely. We're just going to talk about the uh, the deputy for a second. Uh, he was just uh, shown a second. Oh, there he is again. But um, he's uh, played by an actor named uh, Tom, Tom Law. And he was in Master Blaster from the same year, which is a slasher film. Well, it's kind of a slasher film about uh, paintballers uh, going to like a, a paintball retreat. And then they start getting killed one by one. Uh, that was produced by Bill Greffey, who, according to my research, I think he may be involved uh, with uh, George Edward Fernandez today in a professional capacity. So there's kind of that intermingling of uh, slasher films going on that we always talk about there. Um, unfortunately, I, I got this information off of Fernandez's unfinished website, which kind of alludes to them working together. That doesn't explicitly say it, but um, yeah. It's it's interesting that I mean one of the um uh, the the things I found with the interview with uh, George Fernandez in the kind of Miami Herald or one of the Florida papers was that uh, uh, the the sets um the the sets of the the prison uh, cells were actually built in a uh, in in a kind of storage unit uh, that was owned by Fernandez and his father. And that was actually in a town called Melody, uh, or uh, yeah, a town called Melody, um, uh, Florida, uh, Florida, and uh, it's obviously set in uh, Melody, Georgia, or Medley, Medley, yeah, Medley, Georgia. So these are all the kind of ins- inside sets were actually built uh, in this uh, in this warehouse. Um, but uh, apparently, the I mean, talking about another kind of true crime uh, connection to this uh, was that the the film was uh, the, these all the, the inside bits were all filmed there. But he was looking for uh, somewhere else where he could actually uh, do the kind of the outside shots because he wanted it to look like Georgia. And obviously, and this is where your your expert knowledge of like the area, sort of Nathan and Joseph, will come into come into play. Um, 
sort of where you know what you think if you think it really looks like that but apparently it was most of the outside stuff the, the kind of small town stuff uh was shot in uh, a place called um alakua um which is a town 11 miles north of gainesville uh and of course gainesville in 1990 was victim to the uh, very infamous coed Serial killer, the Gainesville Ripper. Uh, not exactly life imitating art, but uh, unfortunately, there was another true life connection there. But um, uh, apparently, Fernandez says he looked at locations like Westwood Drive and Miami Springs, but it was too modern. So he wanted a kind of the look of uh, kind of like an old style, old school Georgia town, presumably. I mean, what were your feelings? Do you feel that he um, he managed to do that? Does it look more like Georgia? Well, <laughs> for me, I. It could be anywhere in the United States. I mean, there's these small towns exist all over the United States, but uh, I mean, we have one here called in Georgia called Chickamauga that was, is a dead ringer for uh, the town here and featured in the film. So, I mean, it could for me, it could really be anywhere. My thing is, I was wondering if you know, like I think you had mentioned it off air, Justin, how um, maybe they they said this was set in Georgia not to kind of tick off the uh, Florida officials. I'm wondering if there's any truth to that. Well, I mean, it might be it might be worth sort of talking about. I mean, just the the I, when I was doing some research on this, I mean, I've done some um, uh, sort of looked at some quite a lot of films were shot in Florida. In fact, at the time this was made, Florida was the biggest movie making state outside of New York and uh, and California. And actually, going, I mean, we're not going to give you a history lesson, but going back to the early times, around 1915 kind of times, Florida was actually where it was at when it came to the uh, burgeoning uh, motion uh, movie picture um, industry. And uh, but apparently, they um, the people in Florida uh, had a reputation that they got royally pissed off with um, uh, people making movies, and they kicked out uh, pro film politicians, and that's part of the reason why it ended up. Uh, stuff moving to uh, California and uh, the lesser uh, state, uh, uh, New York. Um, but by the mid or the well, the 1980s, the Florida was um, re-establishing uh, itself as a kind of place to make movies. And you had films like Body Heat, like mainstream films, like Indiana Jones and Temple of Doom, Something Wild, um, all those kind of films, they all kind of used Florida uh, locations. Um, but apparently there was another kind of backlash because Porky's was filmed in Florida and also the film Black Sunday. I don't know if you remember that movie where the um, the terrorists shoot at uh, a, a kind of Super Bowl um, from a um, and kind of a floating airship kind of th- thing. That kind like of a, a Zeppelin, yeah. A Zeppelin, yeah. Um, and apparently the, at the time, um, people in Florida were really didn't like um, Florida being portrayed in a bad light. And also they were getting really annoyed about loads of uh, movie makers getting their way and closing down streets. So I, again, I mean, this is only kind of, um, you know, my joining the dots, but I do wonder if that was the case. As also Fernandez said at the time, it was incredibly difficult to get um, uh, Florida business people to invest in his movies. Uh, he said they're very conservative in both ways. They're very conservative financially and also politically. So, um, I, so that uh, I would hazard a guess that was part of the reason why they changed it to Georgia rather than Florida, uh, to um, to kind of disguise the fact that it was there for political reasons, basically. Well, Florida got their wish because now Georgia is one of the biggest states uh, for film in, for the film industry outside of California and New York. Playing in the background here, by the way, on the jukebox is a song called Waitress, which we hear 
uh, intermittently for about the next 10 minutes it seems it's um composed by mason daring who does the score for the movie as well and sung by jonathan edwards who had a hit in the early 70s with a song called sunshine when he was more of a kind of a folk singer uh here he's full-on you know country and western with this track and um, mason daring also went on to contribute to the score for 1999's wes craven classic music of the heart have you seen that one it's a real change of pace for wes craven it's kind of a um uh a mushy music teacher story if you've seen it yeah also starring uh meryl streep yeah Yeah, we mentioned earlier and gloria estefan i think who we haven't mentioned (laughs) Um, that's her connection to shallow grave there you go (laughs) i will say um and i'm sure i'm not alone here but um the deputy can be very frustrating in this movie oh yes the sheriff is practically hanging a neon sign around his neck saying i did it i'm guilty yeah, even these girls who are just hysterical and have no reason to be uh, murderers. He even says it at one point in the film. It's like he still, it takes that, that kind of aha moment at the very end. And then by the time he gets it, oh, the movie's over. I wonder if that was some sort of joke. They ended, decided to end it that way as a joke. I don't know. Well, that's what it feels to me like that. Again, that's that 70s grindhouse feel where you have those kind of very cynical endings of sort of a, a number of... Um, uh, films like it's Sugarland Express when it ends with them all dying and you know you've got that kind of slightly more downbeat feel to it um, it feels like he's married that kind of 70s grindhouse exploitation with an 80s slasher movie um, and I think successfully definitely but like you say it is um, you know the, the it is frustrating that character you would think uh, you would hope a police officer would be a deputy would have a slightly better detective skills yeah. Well, well, Fernandez did say in one of those uh, articles I read, he said that he, but a, a, you know, he would look up to Hitchcock in his writing, and he'd look to his style and you know what kind of tropes he would use, and he found he found comedy in a lot of the dramatic irony. You know, him realizing uh, the badge was there, he thought that was you know uh, he, he he could find humor and stuff like that. So I'm guessing it was meant to end that way, although it still has that feel like maybe they ran out of money to me. I don't know. It's, it could go either way, I, I guess is what I'm saying. Well, Hitchcock was very funny, wasn't he? I mean, he's very dryly funny. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of in-jokes. I mean, most famously with him, his appearing in Cameo. Although I don't... I don't. Uh, I saw a photo of George Fernandez in the um, in the Miami Herald's piece, and uh, I didn't spot him in this movie, but I, I might be wrong. Does he have a Cameo in this? Not I'm aware of, but I'm just saying if he's going to push the Hitchcock thing, he would have had a Cameo at some point. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. The I mean, it's worth. Uh, obviously, we talked about George Fernandez uh, a lot, but he's not the director. I mean, the director uh, was a guy called Richard Styles, um, who uh, is still kind of well. He directed a number of things. I think this possibly was his first uh, directorial uh, sort of um, duty, and he was associate director on Ceasefire. Uh, so he obviously had dealings with George Fernandez, and apparently he was he was an actor early on and he was in the um another true crime connection he was in the one of the many kind of early 70s cash-ins on the zodiac murders in san francisco is in the zodiac killer in 1971 um and uh but he's done a number of movies and i think he's prepping a sci-fi movie at the moment i think it's called angel i might be wrong on that but uh yeah again i couldn't find a great deal out about the uh, about the director but he obviously had connections uh with uh um with the producer on this or one of the producers i should say 
Yeah, his next directorial outing after this was a film called Escape, which I haven't seen, but looking at the cast list, uh, it's got Kim and Kyle Richards. It's a second mention for Kim Richards in, the, in this commentary. Uh, Kim, of course, from Assault on Precinct 13 and the Witch Mountain movies, and Kyle, famous for being Lindsay Wallace in Halloween. I think she's back in, in the upcoming first sequel to the reboot uh, in Halloween Kills, isn't she? Uh, she's also in Eaten Alive and The Car. Um, so the two sisters are in that film, Escape, from 1990, that uh, Richard Stiles did. This is an aside. Nathan, only Nathan will probably get this. This is a total aside. But the sheriff character here, Nathan, he kind of remind the way he just kind of goes around destroying evidence and killing anyone who gets in his way. You know who it reminds you of? Don't who's it remind you of? Who? Hoffman. Oh God! Yeah. <laughs> From the Saw films. <laughs> yeah, in a way, yes. Mm. I had I had written down as uh, other uh, killer cop movies like the uh, when does Hoffman appear? Is it three or four? I think it's three. Three, it's, yeah. So it's in three onwards. You've got the killer detective in the Saw films. Yeah, and you got um, also uh, I think Kevin Bacon did a well. It's not a similar movie, but it has that kind of killer. Well, not a killer sheriff, but a bad cop. It's called a uh, cop car where two kids steal a cop car and he starts stalking them and trying to get the cop car back. Um, and he he was in Friday the Thirteenth, so. <laughs> Well, we've got all of, if we're talking about uh, sort of bad cop movies, of course, there was quite a vogue in the late 80s anyway, wasn't there, with um, Psycho Cop and uh, its sequel, Psycho Cop Returns, and of course, uh, Maniac Cop, the uh, those movies as well. So there was definitely something in the air, wasn't there, in law enforcement in the uh, the late mid-late 80s. Yeah, so maybe that was the, uh, I was wondering earlier, you know, what type of film they were trying to pay homage to. Maybe it was just uh, the killer cop genre. Well, it predates. Well, it certainly predates Maniac Cop. I'm not sure when the first Psycho Cop came out. It was about eighty nine, I 80, think. Eighty eight, eighty nine. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this was this movie was um, from the I could see in the copyright um, the, um, the kind of uh, uh, database. It was kind of in development since summer of eighty five, uh, and it it shot through July of nineteen eighty six. Uh, and an article in the LA Times said it was destined for a cinematic release in March of nineteen eighty seven. Uh, but the interview I saw, had saw with George Fernandez said that it was then due for a cinema release in September 1987. But then I presume it came out on video, uh, straight to video at some point in 87. I'm not sure, quite sure when that was. You know what else came out in September of 1987? Do tell. Fatal Attraction. Ooh. And Eric, you'll like this. Just a month earlier was Dirty Dancing. <laughs> Maybe he realized... Maybe they realized they had no chance of competing with those films. Well, it got um, it got certified an eighteen by the BBFC in the UK, which is the English equivalent of the MPAA. Um, it got an eighteen certificate, which is the highest rating I think you can get. Uh, but I don't think it was cut in any way. Uh, and as you said, it was released on the Embassy Home Entertainment label. Great cover as well. It, it's a lost art. The um, the hand painted cover. Yeah. No. Absolutely. I mean, it's a great. Because I, I, I used to have the VHS of that, and I reviewed it on Hysteria Lives quite. I can't remember how many years ago, uh, so it was quite defined back then. But I think this is the first. I don't think it's ever been a, a digital release before, has it? I mean, it's yeah. Everything that's been on streaming has been a VHS rip, as far as I know. Like it's currently on Tubi TV, and that is a VHS rip. Did you see it was released in Australia? Well, apparently released in Australia under the title uh, "Greetings from Medley, Georgia." In, 19, in 1989. Now, I couldn't find any um, artwork to um, back up that little factoid I found, but... Yeah, I searched high and low and yeah. nothing. 
I'm wondering if it might have been some sort of advert and it, someone got confused. It was Possibly. like a tagline. Yeah, it could yeah. be. Yeah, because the tagline on the Embassy Entertainment one is quite good. It says, where the most feared killer wears a badge. Mm. They seem to be quite... I, I, I don't know whether it failed to find an audience at the time because they seem to be... Um, the slasher movies uh, and horror movies made in Florida seem to kind of bookend the 80s. There was in the early 80s, you had obviously the Fun House. Um, of course, the other one's Eyes of a Stranger. is uh, It was um, very Florida. You could tell that was Miami uh from 1981 i believe and um and nightmares and damaged brain some of that was i think shot in florida as well and then towards the end of the decade you had like nightmare beach and primal rage uh and whereas they were those were both looking for ways to take the slash movie and do different things of primal rage um of course preempted uh 28 days later with like the the killer rage virus um, uh, and kind of causing students to go on a rampage in, in a kind of slasher movie style murders, and of course Nightmare Beach had the had the the killer with the uh, electrified motorbike. So it feels like this kind of fell in the middle in that kind of 1985-86 um, was possibly why it maybe it failed. Maybe at that point it, those the films just weren't you know sort of ripe for cinema release. I don't I don't know. Well, maybe I think, if they I think hadn't... oh, go ahead. I was just going to say if. Um... If they were, if we are calling this a slasher film, then the slasher film was very much out of vogue in 1987. Um, because I was looking at the box office top 200 actually for 1987, and Dream Warriors was big that year, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3, it was number 20, but then you have to go down to number 149 to get your next slasher movie on the list, and that's Prom Night 2. Uh, I was going to say Prom Night 2, Electric Boogaloo. That's not right. It's Prom Night 2, Hello Mary Lou. That's what I'm thinking of. Um, and Stepfather did even worse, number 152, Return to Horror High, number 174. And that's it. There's four what you could call slasher movies in the um, top 200 that year. So people really weren't interested anymore, I'm guessing. Hmm. Well, another film that was shot in Florida, but it was made to look like it was, it was supposed to be, uh, it was set in California. Um, was another kind of um, long overlooked classic Scarecrows. That was filmed in 1985, um, but not released until 1988. So that sat on the shelves for a little while. And the connection, there's a, a few there's a few connections with that film and this film. Um, one of them is the special effects by Jerry Macaluso uh, was the did special effects on, on this film and also Scarecrows. In fact, I think he was only... Um, he was only 17 when he accepted the, the job on Scarecrows. Uh, so he was only 18 or 19 when he did this. And apparently he went on to be the youngest ever effects supervisor on a multi-million dollar film, The Unholy. Um, so I think he's still working now. He went on to work on two of the Toxic Avenger movies. Um, one of the, the more bizarre um, uh, credits I saw, and again, Looking when you kind of cross reference things at IMDb, you always have to be a little bit careful because, um, but it seemed that he was, he was, uh, uh, had um, someone else working with on special effects was someone called Clifford Guest, who bizarrely was uh, at one point listed as the Wonder Boy of ventriloquism in Australia. It's an Australian ventriloquist, which you can't I can believe it. You can believe it. So I can't even say it without my hands up at all. Did you say his name was Christopher Guest? Clifford Guest. 
Oh, I was about to say, what's he doing? Moving special effects. Not Jamie Lee Curtis's husband. That would be too much of a. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, apparently, he was he was quite a famous um, ventriloquist, and I still can't say that word in the 1950s and 60s. And he performed for Harry S. Truman, Richard Nixon, and uh, George Bush, and he was he appeared quite regularly on the Ed Sullivan Show. Uh, so apparently, he did. He helped with special effects on this, and was also the art director on Scarecrows. So uh, a little fun fact, if I am to I love is all to these be. little connections. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we always say it. I mean, if you actually take about 10 of these movies and put them in a pot and stir the pot, you're going to find out that they're all connected somehow. <laughs> it doesn't matter what 10 films you pick. I mean, there's 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 bound to be some sort of connection. That's why I think that's why I like the slasher films, are, if we're calling this a slasher film. I think that's why I like them so much, because they're it, it feels familial. Like it's like a big family. Yeah. And nothing in this movie seems too over the top. To me, it feels very real. Apart from Rosa's get up in the when they were at just after the car crashed with her little oh, crop top. With her, well, I suppose, yeah. Yeah. She just wanted to cool down. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you'd I, probably do the same, Eric. I would imagine of the four of us, you'd be the first one to strip down to your underwear. <laughs> well, this is true. I can't deny it. Um, you were saying, Justin, earlier about, um, you know, residents of Florida not really wanting films made there that portrayed them in a bad light. But uh, poor old Georgia is not being portrayed in a very good light in this film or in... Um, it was the location for 2001 Maniacs, which was the re- remake seek slash sequel uh, that Tim Sullivan did in 2005. And it, it, it's kind of a sim- very similar setup to this. It's a bunch of folk off to spring break in uh, they're going, their destination is Daytona Beach in Florida. And they get stuck in a place called Pleasant Valley in Georgia. And uh, yes, they meet sticky ends as well, much like our... Uh, quartet of girls in this um, the original 2000 Maniacs though was actually shot in Florida as well although I'm not sure if they specify what state that's one is set in but I mean Deliverance as well which is another classic city folk go into the country and, and are not welcome type movie that was um, filmed and set in Georgia the, the, the four main leads are supposed to be you know from Atlanta and they go out to sort of rural Georgia uh, for a weekend trip with terrifying consequences so yeah georgia is not portrayed in the best light in a lot of these movies well to be fair i mean the the part of georgia i live in is kind of a bustling city type place uh but i'm i'm imagining or i could probably say that there's a lot of places in georgia that are still like this today that you probably do not want to step foot into Well, I think there was kind of, of, again, from what I was reading about the film industry at the time, there was a lot of competition with, I mean, Florida was losing, it was, they they were saying it was going to losing its footing uh, to other places like Georgia and uh, North Carolina and Texas um, were kind of uh, sort of uh, champing at the bit to try and get a piece of the action, the film action at the time. But even so, they, uh, they apparently in uh, 1986, there were 37 features and TV projects worth 114. $14 million uh, filmed in Florida. So it was still pretty bustling. Well, I guess they just kind of shot themselves in the foot taking out that. Uh, I mean, because they're going to get tax revenue off that money. I mean, our tax breaks off of all those uh, productions. I mean, why would you shoot that out of your state? You know, over petty grievances. You'd get to see celebrities. Yeah. Well, maybe they're and, fed uh, up of seeing Don Johnson in that kind of uh, pale kind of linen jacket running around with a gun. Dean, I don't 
Who would want to shoo away an actress uh, skipping, stripping down to her underwear and smoking cigarettes on the side of the road? <laughs> smoking a lot of cigarettes, judging yes. by the stubs she leaves behind. Yeah. Yes. And she still wants more. I mean, it wasn't even enough. Smoking's an addiction, Nathan. It's not. It's not their fault. Well, they needed an excuse to get the girls out into the woods. But, I mean, for me, it's like <laughs> she's going to get cancer before she even makes it to the woods. Now, do you, do you know what the, uh, the connection between this film and Godzilla, King of the Monsters is? Ooh, that's the one of the recent ones. <laughs> what? It's, um, it's one of the other producers. There are two other producers on the movie. One was Barry H. Waldman. Um, and uh, he um, moved to Florida to study at University of Miami and became a uh, production assistant. And uh, he went on to uh, produce this movie, but then he went on to later, quite quickly, relatively, went on to work with uh, Jerry Bruckheimer. And Shallow Grave was his first production, but he went on to produce films like Armageddon with Bruce Willis, um, very overblown, big-budget Hollywood movies like Pearl Harbor, um, worked with Nicolas Cage on National Treasure series and most recently, one of the most recent credits, I think he's still working, is for uh, producer on Godzilla, King of the Monsters. So very oh. different tempo wow. to, to this movie. From, from um, little acorns. Yes. And slightly less, well, I say less accomplished, but the other, another uh, producer was Ralph Clemente. He was, um, I think he was a German immigrant where he came over when he was very young and he'd... Um, uh, he was a stand-in on Flipper, which is a very, again, very Floridian uh, TV series about the friendly dolphin. Um, and then he went on to become a head of film at uh, one of the community colleges in, in Orlando. So, uh, yeah, so a lot of local talent on this one. Going back to uh, George Fernandez again, um, he seems to have a like a predilection for kind of the backwoods, uh, you know, stay home, don't go to this part of the world uh, films. He's uh, as of 2017, he was involved in a independent film about the underground slave trade in America called Lucinda. And then in 2011, and you'll like this, Nathan, um, he appeared to have a hand in, in the distribution of a film I think you might like. Uh, it appears to be a riff on the cannibal or jungle holocaust films. It's called Island of the Cannibal Death Gods. It's about, uh, I think it, it seems to be about a film crew going into the woods and getting killed by some uh, unsavory backwoods types. But it's very low budget, very, very, very low budget uh, 2011 effort that he was involved in. Uh, in the woods. So he has like this thing for, uh, you know, carnage in the woods. It's, it would appear. Have you, you guys, um, seen American rickshaw, the Sergio Martino movie? Yes, I have. Yes. Cause that's, that was a kind of a Florida, uh, sort of set or for a Florida films, kind of supernatural, a supernatural sort of martial arts movie. Yeah, it's kind of a supernatural Karate Kid type movie, yeah. Right, so a bit like Ninja 3, the domination style. Kind of, yeah. Mm -hmm. Because of the, uh, as, as far as I remember, it's a while since I saw it, as far as I remember, the first half is, is kind of normal Karate Kid action, and then suddenly it takes a supernatural turn, and you're like, whoa. What film are you talking about? American Rickshaw. I think it has another name as well. 
because it's um i mean the reason i bring it up is um the, the final uh of the the four unfortunate uh, co-eds that we haven't mentioned is uh patty or carol cadby uh and she um uh was in went on to american rickshaw uh i think she's still acting she was in the netflix movie the radium girls about the um the very strange case of the have you heard about in the 1920s with the when they used radium for clocks and um uh, for the numbers on clocks and the the girls uh, it was very kind of dangerous and it made the girls glow so it made them radiate and they all got cancer and died another cheery tale um <laughs> so uh, but yeah she was uh, so she's still acting uh, is an i think she's an acting coach and a voice coach uh, today so i was kind of surprised i mean her death's coming up isn't it yeah, and she seems like she would be the final girl here. I mean, she has that that girl next door, you know, aura to her. And then when he goes into Since the cell, not to be left alone. Yeah, he goes into the the deputy does anyway. Yeah, it's like you expect her to escape one more time and kind of put a stop to this, but it's another one of those uh, bait and switch or pull the rug out from under the viewer moments. And I was quite shocked that you know she was not the final girl. I was totally expecting her to uh, w- win this as it were here's the classic um you know woman in peril trying to hide from somebody and then a little critter comes along this uh, film <laughs> it is yeah, really this tough. film this film plays with this film plays with peripheral vision uh, just out of someone out of their perif- peripheral vision it plays with that a lot in this film and i think they do it really well especially in the upcoming scene with the guys at the uh, police station and she's hanging in the in the in the, in the cell i thought that was just very intense very suspenseful and they do it a lot in this film where you just – a character can't see, but you see it. It's just, it's uh, very nerve-wracking. But this bit where she is uh, in, you know, trying to hide and there's a snake in front of her reminds me of poor old Amy Steele under the bed in Friday the 13th Part 2 where, with the rats. Yes, and that is a cliche in and of itself, a, a spider or a snake yeah. or a what rat. Was the film just... we were, did we do a commentary for a film recently where somebody has a spider – menace them as they're trying to hide from a killer well there's one i can't remember the movie but there's one ridiculous film where they they're hiding and like a spider crawls over them and then a snake crawls over them it's yeah, like it's chopping and mom, like, i think yeah <laughs> or it might have been um uh, they call me macho woman does something similar to that as well he's also got um obviously uh echoes of friday 13th part and three that barn was used in so many slasher films i'm shocked they didn't use it for this one just as an aside, did you see that they're real rebuilding Higgins Haven? I'd I'd go there for a dollar. <laughs> Me too. But you know, once they, uh, I mean, once they escape from the jail cell earlier in the film, like a few minutes ago, it's just it's not it's a nonstop chase scene, and I think uh, you know for what it's worth, I think this is it does uh, the kind of the stalk and slash or not slash, but kind of the cat and mouse thing. Uh, you know, pretty much better than or as good as some of the best films in the genre. No, I, I agree absolutely. I mean, for a, a relatively low budget movie, uh, it, there's a lot of talent behind the camera. The cinematography, like I said, is just amazing. I mean, I was shocked at how well shot this film is. I mean, I I, I didn't get a chance to look into the cinematographer, but I'm assuming he must have had a, a decent career after this. I would just assume because he's very talented, obviously. 
I'll say this one thing about Sue Ellen here is that if it was me and I was in her position and he uh, was to shoot the snake in front of me, I would have screamed so loud that, yeah, I would, I'd be dead. Well, you could time your scream with the, him shooting the shotgun, kind of like they do with the thunder and lightning. That way you can get your frustrations out you know, and still not be found. <laughs> why did he why did he shoot it anyway I don't I don't think he minds killing animals yeah maybe he maybe as the movie goes on he's enjoying killing more and more how about that yeah. I think that's a distinct possibility yeah see that's the that's the impression I got is that he a part of me thinks that this guy enjoys doing what he's doing but but he's kind of led into it by opportunity so I, I'm conflicted there. But I think he gets a sense of power from it. So he just, you know, I think he's like, he definitely starts to enjoy it because he enjoyed shooting the snake. I love the backwoods yokels as a, a posse. They do that in Silver Bullet to very comedic effect with them getting <laughs> attacked by the werewolf in the fog. You never have a posse in a horror film because they're going to get hurt. And I'm shocked that none of them got their heads blown off here. Yeah, the following year, Halloween Four came out, and it ends with a with a redneck posse, I suppose you could call them, trying to hunt down Michael Myers. Too little effect. One movie I watched in preparation for this one was uh, William Girdler's uh, Three on a Meat Hook, because Justin mentioned it, and I was like, you know, there is some similarities there because it's the four girls in the beginning, you know, and they run afoul of a killer. Although the death scenes in that are very, very, um, well, I get not all of them, but there's a decapitation that's very unforgettable. It's kind of quite low rent, I seem to remember. Yes, mm-hmm. it is. Um, but I, I thought it was a lot of fun. I mean, but you know me, you know, you guys know my taste in movies. And you know, like we were saying earlier, you know, these guys, again, right here at the very end, this is the last time we see them. Um, you just almost expect like somehow they're going to hear her or something. Yeah, it's weird because like they keep them in the movie and they keep going back to them like just, you know, it's like a Chekhov's gun. Like pay attention to these guys. They're going to be important later, but they're not. I mean, they just kind of vanish. Yeah, it's kind of feels that the um, it's kind of wanting that kind of cruel sting because she's so close to redemption, isn't she? Being being saved, but also just I don't think we mentioned the the other of the the teenage boys is played by Greg Todd Davis. Uh, I think the character's Owen, um, and he was also in American Rickshaw with Carol Cadby, and he was also in uh, he played Ralph in Nightmare Beach, which is the other. Uh, slasher we move, move we made uh sorry we mentioned and uh, uh like a lot of them did local theater as well but uh yeah so there was a lot of kind of mixing uh with the sort of local talent i for one am uh i hated to see the uh this this character die but i for one i'm kind of glad that they did not go down that rape scene uh path because i think that would have ruined this film i'm kind of glad they they cut it short uh, where they did because I think I think this is one of those rare films where usually when it when a film becomes so cynical and it just starts killing off people I get you know kind of frustrated this is one of the films where I, I'm okay with it because it's so well done but you know I think throwing in a rape scene would have just kind of thrown it over the edge um, as an aside did anybody read some of the graffiti on the walls here <laughs> one of them says I creamed in my jeans <laughs> 
And then another one says, suck it, baby. Mm-hmm, I saw that one. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I feel I so it, bad for her character. Hmm. But it's definitely kind of um, hinting at that kind of rape thing. I mean, that, that was the uh, one of the major scenes in uh, Jackson County Jail, I think. Uh, which kind of uh, kickstarts all the kind of uh, a lot of the problems is uh, the the female character gets raped in a jail cell uh, if I remember correctly and uh, she escapes and then causes it causes the the what happens in the rest of the film so is that I think there's a lot for referencing that uh, and there's been like I mean there's been so many of those kind of women in prison movies I mean there's a whole genre of them in the 70s like the big dollhouse and all of those kind of those movies so um i think there's a lot of referencing going on and that's why i say it's a kind of look back to those kind of the mid 70s exploit uh, exploitation or exploitation movies going on here as well yeah it's it's i i kind of like the scene actually because you think you think okay he's going to try something with her but she's got she's got some kind of trick or card up her sleeve and, that, you know, again, like this film, this entire film is just pulling the rug out from under you. So it, the way the way he just kind of just goes in for the kill, it's, it's very shocking. So that's how you undo a bra. <laughs> I've never known. Why would you? I just noticed why I am one bit of graffiti on the wall was in Spanish. It was Quiero Culo, which um, Justin... Is your Spanish up to? I think that says I I want cock. Uh, I yeah. Well, I, I it's it's de- it's definitely I it's definitely I want, but I got a translation as I want ass. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I don't I don't know this. I I know a bit of Spanish, but I don't know the swear word in Spanish. Of course you don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's some. Uh... There's a there's a connection for you. You went to Catholic school just like these girls. Yeah, but I survived. I survived spring break. <laughs> just like Sue Ellen. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Nathan. Oh, this this could lead to Alice territory. If you didn't know, I'm sorry. Nathan's got a theory that Alice survives the being having a nice big shove for her head in Friday Thirteenth Part Two. So, do you um, want to know how I believe that? Because it's a dream sequence. Yeah, that I I once dreamed that I fell and I'm still alive. It's there. Proof. We don't see anyone sleeping or dreaming in the film. That's the thing, Nathan. Not in this movie. I'm not talking about this movie. I was talking about Friday the 13th Part 2. That's what I'm saying. We don't see that in Friday the 13th Part 2 either. Did you see the a bit of graffiti there? It says "No party for you." It's kind of mm. sort of very cynical. But well, Justin, I was going to ask you. You you mentioned earlier that this was filmed in a a storage unit. Do you think someone they had a set decorator who just carved this stuff in the wall? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> wow. But you notice how the I mean the sheriff is setting up the deputy now to take the fall, isn't he? Because at the end he says you shouldn't have left her alone or something to that effect. Uh, at, at the end of the movie, um, he's trying to probably set up the deputy as the murderer. Hmm. Because I thought he just tried to make it look like a suicide. I could be wrong. I don't know. Yeah, that's that's another possibility. But then, obviously, they've also found these uh, girls in the shallow grave. I suppose he's probably thinking he can pin. He's trying to pin it on the uh, the two girls, isn't he? But because at the end of the movie, Sue Ellen is the one that is the only one that really apparently survived who uh, could um, identify him as a killer. So that's why he has to make sure she's dead, Nathan. 
Yeah, but the deputy figured it out, so he raced and caught up with the ambulance. Oh, I was wrong. We do see the guys again. Yeah, this is the scene where she's just out of his, out of his peripheral vision, and it's very. I, I chewed a few fingernails when I first saw this scene. Okay, I think it just kind of yeah. goes to show you that um, had they looked, they would have been on his death list too. But I'm not. I'm not saying there was some kind of an agenda, but it kind of makes you wonder if, uh, I hate to say this, but it kind of makes you wonder if, if, if someone who was writing this film or came up with story beats had a problem with, with females living in these films and they wanted to kill everybody, all the females, and just let all the men live. It, it almost feels like that at times. I love the fact they just opened fire on her. I mean, I know, I know the sheriff wants them to, but... I don't know. I'm just like, it's just odd to just open fire on this. Well, surely, I mean, surely he'd be under investigation for all this crap that's going on in his town. I mean, even if he's not, you know, sorry, Justin, fingered as the murderer, uh, he's still going to have a lot to answer for with people dying and committing suicide and posses running around shooting people with guns. Uh, he's going to lose his job, at least. Well, I, yeah, I was thinking maybe that guy, that redneck, just really hated uh, Madonna. So that's what he shot <laughs> Or careless whisper. Yeah. Well, that, that's just wrong. <laughs> yeah. One thing I was just going to mention, just one uh, just entertaining little factoid from the interview with um, from the producer. He said about how they, um, uh, they, they presumably knew the police department in um, Medley, uh, uh, Florida. And he, um, so they, they used a real police car and apparently they just put a sticker saying Georgia over the, on the, on the, um, on, on the bonnet or whatever to disguise it. And he said that um, uh, they used that one of the policemen that stops the four the four girls when they drive the speeding was actually a real policeman uh, who just stepped in for for a cameo. Uh, and he said he didn't think people would notice that all the policemen had different uniforms in the movie, even though they're all supposed to be from the same state. But he said he didn't think people would notice. So anyway, that's just last before I, before we run out of time. I thought I'd just chuck that in there. Yeah, and I should just point out to Nathan and Joseph that the bonnet is the hood of the car. That's yeah, what, that's what I know. Okay, sorry. Just in case something got lost in translation. I, I didn't really know it, but once he started saying it, I kind of figured it out. Yeah, not kinda. bonnet like Emily Bronte, I point out, or a summer bonnet. So you get yeah. <laughs> so you get some slasher movie knowledge with these commentaries, and you get some English knowledge with these commentaries. It's we're like all a, about going to school. Yeah, we're cunning linguists. The ending to this one's very similar to me. The ending to Killer Party. Yeah, because they take her away, and they do that. And um, God, I hate to spoil these, but these are like thirty or forty year old movies. But they do the similar conceit in Cheerleader Camp as well. And if we're spoiling things, uh, New Year's Evil. Oh, yes. New Year's Evil. And you have to give props to Sue Ellen. Uh, her hair still looks good. That's true. It does. Yeah, I, I just, I never expected her to be the, I guess, the last person standing or the last person laying down <laughs> awake. Well, they say when I reviewed this, I looked back at my old review and I sort of, I didn't sort of, I, I didn't guess it would be her. So a lot of throwing, uh, flipping conventions and just sort of going back to you sort of saying with like with the the dead body just out of shot again, that whole Hitchcock thing of like his thing about it's more suspenseful for a bomb to be under a table and the audience to know, but not the people sitting above uh, by the table, not knowing the bomb, but the audience knows there's a bomb there. So he's definitely doing that kind of thing, isn't he, with the, the body out shot, which may be seen and give away the whole game. Yeah, and I 
I love this movie. Don't get me wrong, but this freeze frame ending of the deputy uh, realizing what's going on finally, you could almost throw in that um, the uh, process right losing sound effect. It would make it a comedy like boom, 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 boom. <laughs> ha 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 ha. Well, so do we think? I I don't think she lived. No, sorry, Nathan. I don't think she did well, either. I mean, how would he kill? How would he kill her with the ambulance driver in the car? Is he going to kill the ambulance? He has to kill them. I mean, it's like it feels like it's going to be a never-ending cycle of this guy going around killing the whole town until finally no one can pinpoint. And there's no one your can sequel. Point the finger at him. Yeah. There's your sequel. There's your franchise. Yeah. See, I feel like that he tried, but she was rescued by the deputy. Well, there a happy ending for Nathan. A happy so, ending. Yes. Yeah, so. A shallow grave. Nathan's all about the happy ending, aren't you, Nathan? <laughs> So anyway, uh, we that was a shallow grave, uh, and we're delighted that uh, Vinegar Syndrome are putting out this fantastic disc of this movie and rescuing it from somewhat obscurity, because it's certainly a movie that uh, demands to be seen. It's one of the one of the the best of the kind of late eighties kind of slasher tinge thrillers uh, that's been overlooked for far too long. So we're very pleased, you know. Uh, ever grateful for the opportunity to uh, spread our love for these movies. So thank you to Vinegar Syndrome. And uh, and uh, to say, yeah, we are the uh, Hysteria Continues, the slasher-loving podcast, uh, transatlantic, as you can hear. Um, and so we cover a slasher movie every couple of weeks or so. So if you've enjoyed us here, then do check us out on Podcatchers, uh, wherever you find them. And, and uh, yeah, so thank you for listening. <laughs>